evening, Indonesia. My name is Doug Livingston, and this is the Renewable Energy Hour. And with, with me is my special guest co-host that's been helping out while Alex Aragon has been attending other duties. Chris Love. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? How are you doing? All right. You're sounding more muffled than you were when we were talking earlier. Okay. Maybe that's better. Uh, maybe a little bit. Oh, we can okay. hear you. Uh, well, hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Um, so uh, you've been you've been getting more and more at ease with uh, with doing this job. Uh, we we might have to talk you into a more permanent role. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> we'll see about that. Not, yeah. I'm not against it, but I don't know if you you're, know. You're, I want to take on the whole nut. Yeah, you're I'm you're sure. you're crazy busy as as no. was Alex, and uh, I feel like I'm too busy, but I'm half retired and feeling too busy. But yeah, um, I'm also trying not to work at 7 p.m. <laughs> yes, yes, and, so. and hopefully this isn't work work. No, it's not. Um, that's I mean that you know to do this at seven should be more of a priority than still in the field working at seven. Well, so. well, tonight we we wanted to talk about a an odd concept that's been coming up more and more, and in a sense has been around for a long time called grid defection. And uh, what that's tended to mean. And I mean, the term's only been around for a handful of years. Is is people who have a utility connection and want to completely unplug, and I have seen that desire in shoot ninety percent of my grid tied customers over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but I usually manage to talk them out of it for financial reasons. And uh, one of the reasons we've been we we considered it tonight was because there's uh, there's been a heavy lobby by the utilities to the California Public Utility Commission for almost a year now, for more than a year now. Um, but but the first proposal was last December, which basically gutted the financial benefits of doing grid tied solar uh, in a long list of ways. Um, and they're about to come out with their third, maybe fourth, depending on how you count it, to stab at that. And they've been they've been shouted down pretty hard by the public. We had we've had a couple of guests on the show over the past year talking about this. Uh, if you're curious about this phenomenon and want to put in your protest to the governor and the CPUC, I would encourage you to go to uh, website Solar Rights dot org is probably the most succinct and articulate website that tells you what's going on and what you can do about it. Uh, have, you been, have you been there? You know the website? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, a lot of even, you know, the kind of larger organ solar organizations and groups as you know, installer manufacturer epc all of that are kind of pointing more to that site you know to really get it all into one spot instead of doing all their own individual mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. uh, is what i've noticed in the last six months more well they've done a great job of keeping it simple keeping it straightforward and 
and yeah. providing guidance. Um, at any and, and it, it, you know, just one detail of that part of the rounds is that there was a lot of apprehension from the CPUC on the last one, but the governor just stepped in and said, nope, try again. And that, well, the, that gov- the governor really, do really doesn't have that, that power. The governor really doesn't have that power. Oh, I thought that was I thought that was different, but I don't know enough about that. Well, I know that they are a, the CPUC is appointed by the governor, is my uh, understanding. He, he, they are, but once right. they're appointed, he really doesn't have any direct legal way to influence their decisions. Um, oh. But he can. Does anybody he can, have veto he, power over the CPC? Nope, nope, not once they're appointed. That's the problem, oh, and they are, you. and they are heavily, heavily lobbied by the utilities. And so we need legislation. We do. Well, there is legislation, and that's interesting. There is uh, state legislation that says that the net metering rules must be such that it is financially viable to do grid tied solar. And, and they are interpreting that as, you know, you should be able to pay off your solar system in eight years, and after that, we get it, basically. Oh. Uh, and yeah. That was their, that, fir- that was their first dirty. proposal. Yeah. And, and, it was, and it was retroactively effective. So if you'd already been on the system for eight years that day, you go to the new system where you have to pay a solar tax, as they call it. But but as Alex points out, it's not a solar tax; it's a solar fee, because yeah. the state doesn't get the money. PG&E yeah. does. Um, yeah, that. I mean, that's just dirty dogging. It, uh, they're, they're definitely wrong. dirty dogging. They're definitely dirty dogging, and Uh-oh. and they're they're talking about radically reducing. You know. The amount you get credited for any excess power you send to the grid to, you know, a quarter or whatnot of the retail rate. Um, yeah. Uh, and even though they didn't have to transport it over transmission lines a long distance, it just goes from you to your neighbor, and your neighbor doesn't suck it down from the transmission line. So a whole bunch of their costs go down because of neighborhood independent utility intertied private solar and that uh, is the concept behind distributed energy resources and the resilience that that actually provides all of us yeah but that, in, in, you know is is you know cause, and just a real quick you know the concept of resilience is getting you know in and above and beyond 99 percent of the time Mm-hmm. You know, and for off-grid systems, this is a really big deal because if you do it right, you have less outages than the utility provides mm-hmm. you unless you're near a hospital or a police station. Yeah. Yeah, my brother lived near a hospital in Plano, Texas and avoided all those power outages, that nasty winter outage. Sure. Um, you know, but it's it's just interesting what's really well, built into the grid to keep alive already. You know, to recognize there is you know priorities built into the system, and, and also so. to hint at a future show. The more distributed generation is put in now, the easier it is to do microgrids later. Yes, that would keep you know, you know, zones of the grid that could stay online even though the rest of the grid had shut down. Yeah, and that neighbors can basically share power in various ways that help keep everybody up and and find financial mechanisms to provide for that as well. So, so at any rate, that's why I, 
I latched on to your suggestion of grid defection because I imagine they're going to be, if they do manage to not get screamed down by the public with some horrendous solar, ain't going to cut it anymore. Uh, yeah, a bad from, tariff. From the, from the CPUC, you will start seeing people, particularly, I think, people who put systems in 15 years ago when they were three, four times the cost, because those are the people who had some money and were early adapters who are going to say, hey, this don't cut it, and they're going to want to unplug from the grid and do everything on their own, and basically right. go off-grid, which kind of cracks me up, because when I think of it, the, you know, the hippie in the woods in 1980 was the original grid defector, they simply decided not to have utility lines brought in. It was cheap, right. cheaper to provide their at least simplest needs from and that is Right. That is one of the kind of pre preemptive methods of defecting from the grid is a lot of new homes built today because of the fires. I don't know all of the costs associated for PG&E, but the per pole cost in a lot of places has totally doubled. And that, it, you you know, when I started in this business, 10 to 15K per pole was not, a, you know, not unreasonable for an area that was in the hills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that 15 was kind of the top-out cost unless you were in a place like Walker Lake yeah, or well, Stewart's oh. Point where it's super, super steep. And now we're looking at 30K. You know, we had, for standard mountain poles. We had a guesstimate so, of, of almost 400000 from PG&E to bring power to the property I'm on now. And, and it, right. was, it was less than a mile. And so, but yeah, it, was, have, it, it had some complications through the woods, all helicopter wood, work up a steep slope. And, yeah, we've had some recent clients that were building new houses, and, oh, yeah, we're going to bring the grid up from right over there on that road. And it's like, well, you know, we're talking a quarter of a mile. It's like, I can't see how this is less than $75,000, you know, and plus the engineering fees. And he's like, oh, screw it, we're going off grid. Yeah. You know, and well, we've we've done a bunch of those over the last five years. Well, that's a, that's from, how... From Austin Dental to Hopland and, you know, around here. That's how... All the old off-grid systems went in, you know, it was, mm-hmm. you know, my house, you know, 390000 for PG&E to come in, and I put in a, you know, $25,000 system and have been happy for almost 20 years now. Right. With a few battery changes along the way. Don't forget yeah, the cost years. of battery changes if you want to unplug from the grid or go off-grid. Yeah, that is the big expense in the off-grid and that, you know, a grid-tied system could be, you know, a dollar fifty to, you know, $5 a watt, depending on how horrendously complicated it can get mm-hmm. with your site. But, you know, five is very high. And, you know, an off-grid system, we used to say, oh, it's about $9 a watt, but that doesn't really play out as a good concept these days anymore yeah well you know we're just talking about the solar versus the battery and you know doing that wattage crossover doesn't exactly meet out mathematically yeah well and i'm thinking i'm thinking i'm thinking watt hours not watts right that's the ultimate bottom line yeah and if you're doing lithium you're going to pay a lot more for those batteries today but they're 
you know, you're not going to replace them every five or 10 or 12 years. And people that are really good with their lead acids could maybe go 20 years, but they probably have microhydro. That's incredibly (laughs) rare. Incredibly rare. Yeah. I I think of most lead acid batteries as lasting five years. Um, Used used the way people are starting to use them now. I mean, people have been trending toward larger solar arrays and smaller battery banks, so the batteries are getting worked harder. That same bank of L16s back in the day, I would have expected to last last 10 years. But these days, I tend to design a smaller bank with a larger array, and they get worked harder. Yeah, but it's it's, it's a bank that's it's a bank that's half the size, so it costs half as much, but lasts half the time. So it's about the same battery expense. Right, and the lithium batteries today are allowing us to take every last watt available from the solar or the generator or whatever. So oh, yeah. charge yeah. times are super I, short, and you get full almost every day that you have sun. Two 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 and a half co-hosts ago, Jeff Oldham was was my co-host and he says it's amazing how much more energy per day he gets having his lithium-ion batteries for you know he yeah. rattled off a long list of reasons for why this was the case and and some of those had never you know kicked into my brain gears before yeah we are seeing dynamics that are really reassuring and is you know we're getting a lot less service calls yeah well i'm dropping out and how to work a system anyway i want to see how long they last that's the one thing that hasn't truly been measured given how expensive they are but yeah at any rate we've had some we've got some in the in the field for seven years now we're you know feeling pretty good about but the really really expensive option and we're we're kind of on a tangent, but all these things do feed towards the value of grid defecting or not. Right. Uh, that's what I was just going to say was, you know, why all this talk of batteries? Because you've got to have batteries if you're going to defect from the grid. Yeah. And just to give people a real kind of clear, just basic sense, that is your fuel tank. So your gauge is either empty or full or somewhere in between. You know. And, and what happens when it's full? basically do whatever you want. <laughs> yep. Yep. Party on. Turn on that air not. conditioner. In fact, I've got lots of people off the grid who have some sort of automated trigger that most most sophisticated charge controllers and inverters nowadays can do and many people don't use it, but it's built in there right. that they can turn something on when there's power overflowing because your batteries are full and you're not using all the juice. Do something with it. Turn on turn on a uh, uh, well pump, pump into a gravity feed tank. Turn on your air conditioning because it happens all the time in the summer. Turn on, you know, a decorative fountain pump. What the hell? Turn on a, a pond aerator. Turn, electric water heater. Turn on an electric water heater. Your, yeah, cut back on your gas usage right. if you have a gas water heater because mm. a lot of times you can probably six to nine months out of the year, depending on the weather, you can almost eliminate gas water heating if mm-hmm. you still have a gas mm-hmm. water heater. You know? this, and, all kinds of fun strategies like that. Yeah, but. We've, we've done some full electric homes, you know, where induction cooking, gas water heating, full heating and cooling with uh, mini splits usually because of their efficiency mm-hmm. and their multi-stage operation. And, um, their, lack and, of, and, and their lack of surge. They, exactly. they, they typically have a variable speed 
motor with a variable frequency inverter driving them so that they don't surge at you know five or six times their running amperage like and it doesn't matter as much with lithium batteries anymore well it matters to the inverter same with lead it matters to the inverter yes and i'm thinking more about the inverter peak loads low I've, i've had systems where they had to buy an inverter twice as big just to cover their search Right. Or exactly. An inverter that's and, twice as big just to cover this. And if we are careful with our usage, because off-grid people have to realize they become the utility company, they are now the operator, and so they define all the grid use principles, priorities, and, you know, desire to do that. And you can do that all manually, or you can automate it with various controllers and PLCs that are available, but it has to be done. You cannot ignore it. Yeah, you have it's to like pay driving attention. a car. You can't just check out and stop driving your car while it's going down the road. <laughs> or or not pay attention to the gas gauge. Exactly. <laughs> or or the know. or the oil level. Yeah, or the water temperature. <laughs> if you're you know if you're not you know if your system's not in a good place and it's running hot, it's going to start to derate until eventually it gets hot enough and shuts down. You know, and that goes for your battery temperature versus your inverter temperature versus your charge controller temperature. None of those pieces of equipment can operate at extreme temperatures as efficiently as they would, at, you know, somewhere between 77 and 96. It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare that I've seen issues with that, but when it happens, boy, is it a problem. Yeah, yeah, battery, like a lead-acid battery gets to 115 and all of a sudden malfunction, you know, and everything goes down. It's like, oh, have you watered your battery lately? (laughs) Are you equalizing and you haven't watered your battery? Oops. If you haven't watered your battery, you're doomed. That's that's one of the most common problems with lead-acid batteries, people forgetting to water them. The, the, The other most common problem is people running them too low and leaving them low for too long hey uh i have not mentioned it but uh we wanted to open up the phone lines for a big segment of the show and i've already got somebody calling in so i think i'd like to take them since they probably have a pertinent point to what we've been talking about yeah as long as we can get to our key points all right all right hello caller you're live on the air oh thank you yeah boy you're hitting all the right uh, targets here. Good, good conversation tonight. Um, how's it going, Chris? And uh, yeah, this is Eric. I think. Um, yeah, I was wondering. Uh, one of the things about uh, the batteries is, you know, it's the external charging uh, source, which is uh, sometimes there's not a big enough charger for the, a big enough battery bank. So I was wondering if you guys have a trading time opportunity this evening. Oh, 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 you want to you want to offer or ask for a, a charging I, I source? Are you I've talking about a generator power charger or a yes. solar power well, charger? It could be either one. No, or uh, a utility it's power charger. Source. AC to DC. Okay, uh, so it could be either either utility if it's there or generator. Sure, utility. sure. Throw it out and there. This, yeah, it's a it's a, an IBE industrial battery engineering uh, San Diego manufactured. Uh, GPU 12, so it's, it's for a 24 volt system. It's uh, one of the older ones. It's 166 amps continuous uh, peak, over 200 amps. So it's only for a battery that's going to be at least 850 amp hour or bigger if it's lead acid, otherwise you right. risk damaging uh, the plates, right? 
And, yeah, people uh, should never, work. ever give more than 20% to their lead-acid batteries, and most of them can only take 15. Yeah, what what, what people call a, a C5 rate. Yeah. And that goes from solar, too, for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, <laughs> yep. for, for lead acid, you can go way higher with lithium ion. It is yes. a major limitation. Right. So, uh, but for those, you know, winter coming on, days are already getting shorter. can really see what's going on. Um, just, you know. The, so this, this is a standalone charger for people who don't have a charger built into their inverter or want a bigger one. Right, because they're usually too small. Uh, Outback is like, you know, they're great chargers. They're very well made, but they're not real big. And uh, right, yep. And so it's, you know, the twenty-four volt system. We still see them out there. They're still out there, uh, and they will yeah. most likely be lead acid because there are a lot more uh, lead acid opportunities. Yeah, it well, work. It was older school volt. too. There wasn't another option. <laughs> Most definitely, and this came from an old school uh, lead acid uh, job, you know, with the hawkers. So, uh, yeah, it they they last and last and last. This is a it doesn't have any of the, uh, the fancy electronics that modern day do. In fact, it doesn't even pass California uh, efficiency standards. So you can't even buy them in the state in, in California anymore. You know, this is from an earlier time. Uh, but resilient. however. Super resilient, super durable, and they have the taps. They have adjustable taps, so you can set for the voltage, whether it's 28.8 or if you like to take it up to over 30, uh, totally can do. So you could equalize. Where and... Exactly. So it uh, comes to heavy-duty you know, uh, enclosure. I, I want uh, $700 for it. it. It's worth at least twice that if you could even find one in California, which you probably can't. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, fi- I, I find them every now and then in somebody's barn and garage. And this is, you know, to give people a concept here, this kind of battery, you know, that somebody that maybe doesn't know is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's along the lines of industrial forklift battery. And so this is a very serious charger that you know, is really capable, and the co- the concept of the value is, is absolutely spot on. Yeah, so, so. I mean, there, there are other products out there that, that have lots of transistors, and they, they do the same thing, uh, but in a, a different manner. This, this has a really large transformer. Um, so, like I say, yeah, it's, that's, that's it's, something it's, that's it's almost bulletproof. So I would say, I would describe it as that. Pete always put them in on his older jobs. And we still see them, you know, the mm-hmm. old XL techs and, and the old IBEs. I mean, those things are from I, 1999. I, no, I, I just saw a 42-year-old IBE battery charger. At least yep. I assume it was because the inverter was 42 years old and still working. <laughs> this this exactly. one's 12 years old. This, this, that, that, that's pretty impressive. But, it, it you know, they, they made things to last. In fact, you can still get yeah. them. They just have to come into Oregon or Nevada. And yeah, in general, them. people should know the average life of this kind of equipment in the commercial level is 10 years. And it, yeah, and it was used every day. Yeah, where this IBE stuff, you know, 20 or 40 years is not unheard of. We're talking about really hardcore equipment. It's meant to be used every day on a forklift recharging system. So if you, you need know, not just occasionally. If you need a twenty four volt charger on a sizable battery bank, this is a sweet one. Uh, so how about some contact information? 
Okay, yeah, name is Eric, and the phone number is 367-3655. 367-3655? Yeah. Eric, I'll let you get Eric, the conversation. Eric in Yorkville. Right-o. So, yeah, thanks for talking about, uh, you know, all, all of this grid defection. It is going to be uh, what most people are going to end up having to do, not because they necessarily want to, but you got the utility with its carrot and its stick, and it's... You know, driving people to do what they can do. Yeah, yeah. All right. I enjoyed yeah, it. I enjoyed. 21 years of grid uh, connection, you know, and it just ran out. It's a 21-year agreement with the utility. So uh, they already changed the rates. Uh, you know, I'll have to be one of those defectors, too. <laughs> All right. Well, you know how to right. do it. Take care. Indeed. All right. We'll carry on. Okay. Bye-bye. Grid defection. Well, that's a piece of equipment that could be useful. Grid defecting. Although these days, I'd encourage you to be on a forty-eight volt battery bank. Yeah, the twenty-four volt is really more aligned with the RV in the mobile world um, to stay under that thirty volt threshold when they don't want to do a twelve volt. And the mm-hmm. you know really, it's it's that that whole area of lithium battery manufacturers making twenty-four volt batteries is really more focused towards replacement on existing systems mm-hmm. rather than new systems, mm-hmm. you know, where you know that you've got good equipment and it's worth building against. Um, and most of those, to be clear, are open loop. The batteries don't communicate with the inverters. Right. Because that old equipment doesn't have any of that hardware, you know, embedded in it. And, um, you know, with anything new, I would absolutely 100% recommend getting a closed loop, but there's also... Closed loop, closed loop meaning there's computers. There's computers in both systems talking to each other and coordinating yeah. things. Yeah, and so the inverter knows perfectly what the state of charge of the battery is because the battery is deciding what its state of charge is. Mm-hmm. So you have a real clear resolution of how full or not full it is, but but there's also, you know... This is not a fully mature area of new systems. You no. know, there's still a lot of integration going on with manufacturers between inverters it, it, and batteries and charge controllers. But where it, in the AC coupled world, it actually works really well. It's evolving as we speak. Yes. Yeah, there are people going to sleep tonight probably dreaming of this because they're stressed. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they have to produce this stuff, you know, because that's what management's given money to do it. So we've talked about grid defection for, you know, old school, the people who just decided not to bring the lines in. And more recently, the term, you know, was really only introduced to talk about people who are on the grid who wanted to unplug from the grid. And that's substantially expensive. And most of the time I can talk people out of that. But if the rules change radically, I can imagine a big pulse in that causing even more yeah. causing even more headaches for PG&E as people cease to be customers. Uh, so Yeah, it's going to change the economics deeply and infuriate more people than PG&E has already infuriated mm. without the fire problem. Right, right. Well, which brings up a sort of third category of grid defection, one which PG&E is encouraging that, you know, I hadn't heard much about it until we had our conversations about the show. You want to talk about PG&E encouraging grid defection? Yeah, and if and if I could real quick, just put a pin in that for a second. I want to I want to kind of throw out a disclaimer there because one of the first grid defections I heard of was somebody actually went in and cut the PG&E lines. 
and you know uh, that person went to jail for vandalism uh. here in Mendocino County. And so I want to make sure anybody that's thinking of something so rash understands that all they have to do is turn off their main breaker. Mm-hmm. That's yes. it. Yes. <laughs> You're done. Do, do not do not uh, vandalize PG&E's property. Yeah, because the left side of your meter cabinet, if you have a combined meter cabinet that is got a tag on it, that is a legal lease of your property by PG&E, so it's just like renting a home. You can't just walk in. Uh, it's the same thing. So until PG&E's removed their lines and says we're not hooking them back up again, you cannot touch that side of the meter. But you can um, turn off the connection to them. More importantly, absolutely. more importantly, you need to, you know, tell them you do not want power anymore. Right. And you have a legal right in this state, regardless of the county. Now, there may be cities that have ordinances that you must have power, and you have to walk a tightrope to do anything else. So let's make that clear. There are places out there where you're legally obligated to be connected to the grid, which just is insane to me. It is absolutely insane. And that is a you know, legally legislated, supported monopoly, and it really should be investigated. Yeah, and, um, well, and should Probably. be taken, taken up the courts, saying, yeah. hey, this is, I, this is unjust on a long list of constitutional and legal rights. Yeah, I mean, the code is real clear. You have an absolute right to build a standalone system all you want. And the minimum that you must do is support your largest load in your system that your electrical equipment must support your largest load and nothing else. That's the electrical code. And that's every state. So there's, you know. But there are other laws coming into this, and and usually it's, you know, health and safety is the excuse in city ordinances that require a house be connected to the grid. And those are really, really, really common in the southeast across, like, little towns and cities and you know, it kind of couples with the, you got to have $20 in your pocket or you're vi- breaking the law. You know, you have to have an ID, various stuff. Anyway, so the, the defections you're referring to um, where grid, you know, PG&E, excuse me, PG&E is suggesting it as mostly to do with the fires that we've experienced in our region. Um, and that I know myself of three different Old, you know, originally built with money that came from rural electrification, you know, kind of WPA era, post-Roosevelt. Which was federally subsidized line extensions out into areas where there weren't enough customers for a utility to justify investing in those lines. Right. And that is all 50 states. This is part of why the, you know... The Midwest became the the country's breadbasket. It's part of why Central California became the country's breadbasket. It's 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 also kind of it's also what killed killed the wind industry in the United States. Right, there was a thriving wind electricity generation industry that got killed in the 1930s by the Rural Electrification Act. Yep, and you know this. Oh, I kind of missed the point here. I'm sorry. Um, I'm, I'm, oh, oh, it coincided with, you know, the development of really, you know, worthy pumps so they could pump water to all this farmland because, you know, farmers, if they were, you know, killing the wind industry, 
then which was either electrified or mechanical then they needed well pumps and this also coincided with you know the tractors it's kind of part of the green revolution mm-hmm. you know that occurred that brought in you know massive drilling machines to drill wells you know 600 or more feet deep in places all over the country and made it considered economical if it was a commercial aspect so electricity went everywhere it had never been before you know it expanded our grid by you know, probably 60 or 70%. I don't know the number. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Far outside the cities. Yeah. And so, you know, around us, you know, we have places where, you know, some of these lines shoot off from say Healdsburg or along the 12, you know, up and up the mountains, um, you know, on parallel roads, say Calistoga road or, um, you know, so one example would be the Stewart's fire, uh, in 2020 that burned south of Lake Sonoma, um, almost all the way to Guerneville. And that crossed a couple of these lines and, you know, and one of them straight out of Healdsburg, um, I don't remember the name of the Creek in the, up top of my head, but, um, you know, there's only 10 customers out there and it burned this whole line and PG and E spent somewhere around $3 million just to rip out the burnt infrastructure because they cannot legally leave it there. And then it looks like it's going to be eight to ten million dollars to rebuild it. So they went to all of those customers and said, "Hey, we want to, you know, for you all to go and find proposals from local installers to install a very resilient off-grid system with at least one storage replacement over a thirty-year period and a solar replacement over a thirty-year period, and you know, send us that proposal." And we want to buy you out of the federal and state mandate to provide you power because PG&E cannot back out. Once you have an account with them and you keep it current, they cannot go away and stop providing you power. <laughs> that is unless you, unless you down and they will lose. Unless you agree to their unless proposal. Unless you agree. Exactly. And so that's anywhere from zero dollars to millions of dollars, depending on the kind of you know customer you are. And what kind of power you need. But, you know, these were all homes and ranches and, you know, some third homes, you know, kind of getaway houses. and Some farms, um, some shops. Yeah, one of them is a winery, you know, back there behind the rest of the houses, you know, tucked up way up in a, you know, this creek going out to the coast. And, you know, and so we, we produced a, you know, a proposal and it was, you know, it was upwards beyond $200,000. You know, and it was a sizable all-electric house, you know, big family, and, you know, really complicated problems all over their land, so it made it really expensive. You know, we're talking half a mile of trenches and stuff, and, you know, pretty big deal. Trenching is very expensive, by the way, just in case people didn't know. <laughs> um, and so, that you know, that was kind of surprising, you know, and then we heard about this, you know, we found this client you know, parallel to the Calistoga road that was in the same scenario where they're trying to decide whether or not to pay PG&E to replace the lines because PG&E wasn't just going to replace them, um, you know, if they wanted to go off grid. And so, you know, they were running on a generator for a year while they figured this out kind of a thing, you know, post fire. That was, uh, was, P- was, was PG&E covering those costs? Uh, yes, they were. They were covering those costs. Wow. Um, it was a lot cheaper than just rebuilding the line immediately. Oh, my and, God. And, you know, 
you know, it was, it was multiple people in that particular area up the road. Um, and then, you know, just talking with another solar associate, you know, one of the fires, I'm not sure exactly which one on the southeast side of Clear Lake, um, was in a similar scenario. And, um, and they, you know, they didn't really, it seemed like they didn't really have the right guidance and, um, you know, about which way to go. And they just kind of got overwhelmed and said, screw it, we don't want to do this and forced PG&E to rebuild their line. Um, because that's, you know, being off grid may not be for everybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, People, definitely. You know, and, and I'm going to stick with the car and the driving analogy for the sake of simplicity, because I think it will help people understand. We have a lot of bad drivers. And so if you're not ready to take responsibility, you need to be honest with yourself about yourself and, and what you're willing and and to do. And not go off grid if you're not willing. Yeah, because there's, you know, operator error is not a warranty or a service problem. You know, and the lack of, you know, willingness to address the daily operation of something and misusing it does not constitute an emergency for the sake of your installer who is going to service your system. And, you know, I've had a few clients over the years that they really have extraordinary demands and refuse to read the manual, refuse to take notes when we're giving them advice about how to operate the system, and do not read the laminated placards that we leave behind for them. And at that point, I tell them, um, when you do have problems with this system, don't call me. Yeah, and if they want if they want some kind of an upgrade, we will not provide. Them Don't call me. Exactly, and it's you know, and that's I think that's fair. You know, if you abuse your mechanic, they will stop fixing your car. Mm-hmm. And you know, so there you know, there's some, some pitfalls here. All of them can be addressed, but you have to be proactive. And there's no it's physics, people. There's no option otherwise. We are just as limited as you are. Well, the grid is so, the grid is physics too, but somebody else is driving. Exactly. And now with the CPUC stuff, you know they're they're putting the money in there at an unreasonable rate, and they're. I think PG&E is really trying to subsidize their failure to maintain the grid over about seventy years. Well, they, as you said before the show, they took the money from the feds to extend the lines out into the middle of nowhere and then didn't maintain them for 70 right. years. And that was years. the work of our great-grandparents and our great-grandparents that funded that directly, well, you know, and, through the, the and, budgets. And it's been in particularly bad maintenance over the last 20 years, but... And yeah, and we have several of the big fires, particularly Paradise, where that fitting that caused that fire had been there for seventy years. Wow! And it had a known maintenance life for fifty, <laughs> and that thing had been cutting into the hook on the pole for no less than fifteen years. It was like an in, one inch piece. And it had been cut into by three quarters of an inch. And there's pictures all over the Cal Fire website for the report on that fire. 
And that's why they, you know, the judge dragged the board of directors down there to go walk the fire site for a day, you know, because these were choices that are made and we're, you know, and and I think there's been big and big, big improvements, but there's still these problems that keep happening. You know, the, what is that? The, Oh, what is one of the fires in the national forest right now that, you know, is the Caldor fire? You know, I think from last year that, you know, is turning into another new criminal investigation Mm -hmm. for, you know, equipment not maintained and serviced properly. Well, it's a for-profit corporation, which gets, is by law, gets, you know, a guaranteed 15% profit on capital investments, but maintenance is explicitly excluded from that formula. And one of the things that's been proven across many, many states is the utilities will find a way to do that, to get that guaranteed profit, even when it's not needed. Investor-owned utilities. Yes. Uh, I'm a a big fan of rural electric cooperatives and municipal utilities. Yeah, Yeah, Ukiah just did their first rate hike in over 20 years to 13.8 cents from 12. (laughs) And they actually added tiers, you know, which they didn't have before. It was just a straight rate across the uh-huh. board unless you were a commercial customer. So, and, so what's the know, what's the upper tier for a residential cost? I don't remember, but I think it's under twenty cents. Yeah, yeah. I but think it might be in the eighteen three or eighteen that, five. That still might open the Ukiah market up a bit better for solar because historically yeah. there hasn't been that much solar in Ukiah because they're a nonprofit utility and the power's so cheap it didn't make as much sense to do solar. And, and you might even be able to reach out to the director's office and say, Hey, can I can I just oversize the system to help you guys out? And and they told us yes. And our client gets oh, a check for over a thousand dollars every year. That's been the that's been their rules for for twenty years now. Right, but if you look at the when you go to the building department and you get the packet, it says that it's it can't do more than one hundred and ten percent of your oh, the building department because they're doing it they're doing it based on uh, PG and E's rules. Hey, we well, got no, let- they're no, they're actually communicating with the you know the mud in Ukiah. Um, but that's just the general scope of it, and that if you get permission from the director, you can build it as big as you have available. Cool. If hey. they're willing to do it, and they'll just, we, we you got know, a, it's, it's like asking for a waiver. We got another call. Let's take it. In fact, for people who did not hear me not announce it, the number here in the Philo Studios is 895 2448 if you want to join the conversation. Hello, patient caller. You're live on the air. Hey, um, just thinking about different folks listening right now. They might be thinking they can go off grid and cut from PG and E. Mm-hmm. Going to have an electric car. So the first thing I want to throw out there is uh, how do you how do you guys think that works out? Having an electric car up when you're off grid? Hard, very hard. In fact, yeah, I, I don't. I don't encourage people to defect because it's pretty expensive, yeah. and uh, under the current rules, I wouldn't dream of doing it. But if the rules get a ton worse, or if PG&E offered to buy you a two hundred thousand dollar 
power system that covered your electric car because they don't want to replace the line that burned down, I would jump at it. Yeah, you got to charge before 4 o'clock. And hopefully your home battery is getting full because yeah. otherwise you're you're working two batteries. Yeah, you can't charge overnight. Driving. And that that is cycling your home battery and and using it in a way that's really not going to benefit over the long term economically. Now, for for a retired person who's you know just taking a couple trips into town and once a week you know driving driving over the ridge to Ukiah or something, um, you can charge slowly during the day. You could even put that on one of those circuits we were talking about earlier that turns on. Whenever your batteries are overflowing, but you do not want to be charging your battery, your car battery, off of your house batteries at night. That that's a recipe for financial disaster. Yeah, that is a red flag. I would call it. And yeah, now, I, you know, to do it rarely, that's as an emergency. That's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would completely concur. I just. I listen to the show a lot, and I can imagine people's uh, wheels spinning in their heads right now about cutting from PG&E with their electric car. Yeah, so that's kind yeah. of why I'm bringing it up. Yeah, well, I will, I will restate that. We said that early on. I wouldn't do it under the current rules. I would stay connected to the grid, even go without batteries. You know, most of our electric cars at this point are getting ranges beyond 240 miles. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing some standard, you know, commuting of, say, less than, you know, 20 or 40 miles a day to go to your job, then you can afford to charge your electric car, say, just on the weekend in the daytime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some dynamic or, or a plug-in hybrid manage it, you know. What's that? I said, or a plug-in hybrid, which, you know, gets you 18, 30 miles, whatever it is, and and you got an engine to back you up in a pinch. Yeah, yeah, because otherwise what happens is you end up running a generator, which has a minimum of 500 grams to 1,000 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour. So you can get all the way up to a kilogram of carbon for a single kilowatt hour to charge your electric car, which is even worse than cycling your batteries extra. Though some batteries will allow you to cycle, say, 500 to 570 times a year and stay within the warranty constraints. But it's a 10-year warranty, and you're going to use it up in 10 years instead of 20 or 25, if they can last that long. Yeah, no, it, it, it totally makes sense, and and you know the the concept that there's enough lithium and other elements, and that mining isn't more negative or the same amount as oil and gas is it probably a thing for another show. But um, I, 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 I think it's less, and but it, and that's the evaporative method, you know, the the hard rock mining, and so there there is some you know, kind of hope on the horizon for the geothermal potential as well as the desalination plants all around the world. Yeah, there was technology is very new and it is the greenest possible method for getting lithium. You know, because these geothermal plants are pulling the lithium out for their turbines anyway, you know, in order to not destroy the turbines. And so this equipment can go in very easily into existing equipment 
and provide this revenue stream that makes desalination way cheaper and and doesn't really affect the environmental impact for geothermal plants because they don't have to run you know the the uh, the evaporation ponds like say the mine in Nevada and various other places that's really pretty harsh as far as mining goes and uses an extraordinary yeah. amount of water. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it, it's super harsh for, for the environment for sure. And I mean, it, it, it's, you know, some solutions, there's not that many geothermal plants compared to every car in California, let alone America. But no. I, I have an interesting spin, I think, that you guys will find interesting. So Yeah, the Salton Sea, the Salton Sea is actually very, has a very high potential as a volcanic field to provide lithium for up to 40 years in the United States. And that's just what they know exists there. And we, you know, as much as they've got the ground penetrating radar and so many other things, we've, we've learned that there's more going on than we even see, but. And geothermal potential. Yeah. And that's, and that's what's happening. We already have geothermal plants. There's, I think four companies operating in the Salton Sea and most of them are, you know, working with this new technology to pull the lithium out. Um, one of them, Controlled Thermal Resources, is like the first one, and they're hooked up with GM and LG. There's really big stuff happening in that world, but it's going to take 20 years to build out, build out that field. They're probably, you know, it's going to really change the economics of the Salton Sea, which is in a super depression, you know. Yeah, it is for sure. Somebody asked us to invest in one of those plants. Um, so, an, an interesting thing. So, <laughs> there's a guy named Dr. Good Enough. That is his actual name. Um, good good Enough. Yes, good, Dr. Good Enough, who uh, received a Nobel recently for his old work in uh, lithium batteries. And uh, I'm involved with and started a project called the Gemini Project in Nevada in 2020 as the largest solar and battery project in the world. It's about a gigawatt of TV and about 1.4, 1.6 gigawatt hours of, of battery. Um, we're right up north of Nevada. So obviously I got interested in what's going on with battery chemistries, um, how they should be laid out, jelly rolls, these or stacks or whatever it might be. What's that project in Nevada you mentioned? It's called the Gemini Project. You can Google it. Okay. And so, this was the interesting. Yeah, that's all good, brother. Um, So, this was the interesting thing, and it just kind of scared the crap out of me. But um, what we were looking at is how many shipping containers we need. And it was between 1,200 and 3,000 to do these batteries. And as it turned out, the ones that were 1,200 were too heavy to even bring across the roads. And then, you know, things like chemistry and cobalt versus, you know, lithium, iron, and all that. So um, in this conversation with Dr. Goodenough, we were talking about um, safety and safety factors. And um, the university down in, uh, down in Texas, down in Austin, which is where they're based at, uh, they had done 85% of every insurance claim for a battery fire in America. And he told me on a phone that to date, 1% 
of every megawatt of batteries that has ever been installed has had a catastrophic failure. And I'm like, if I have 1,200 shipping containers, you telling me right now that 12 of them are literally going to catastrophically burn down, explode, etc. Do you think statistically At some point or another? Well, and different chemistries are more vulnerable. You referenced cobalt, and they're far more vulnerable to self-ignition. Yeah, the cobalt oh, yeah, is the real, yeah, exactly. the more cobalt That's you have in those Yeah, the more yeah. cobalt in an NMC or NCA cell, like the cobalt is why they are stabilized. With the less cobalt you use, the more scary they get, which is you know something like Tesla is doing. They're reducing cobalt until they can get to LFP, or some other stable chemistry, but I, I think I think you said that backwards. The less, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, I think I heard Chris say the less cobalt you have, the more scary they get, and and I the less scary they get. Yeah, the cobalt is actually yeah. what stabilizes the N N NMC or NCA batteries. And so NMC to people out there is nickel, metal, cobalt. And the NCA is nickel, cobalt, aluminum. And these are what we put into cars generally. Well, uh, and my, my impression was that the more cobalt you had, the more fire-prone the battery was. Uh, I have the opposite impression from the chemists. Huh. I'll have, to, I'll have to do some more reading. Yeah, batterychemistry.org is a really good, you know, basis for what's going on with the chemistries. Hey, uh, we're getting to the top of the show. Yeah, one of the one of the differences is that uh, the more cobalt, the harder it is to put out. And so the reason I was bringing this up, we were talking about fires with PG&E. And years ago, I'm like, just wait. All of these Tesla power walls and these Tesla cars are going to start lighting up in driveways, and they are. Well, and they just and you haven't burned down a week. Shut down the one because of a fire in the area of Moss Landing near Monterey Bay for another container fire with battery systems, which has happened four times now at that particular region. Two different when we move into houses, right? We're going into people's garages and electric cars, it's a matter of time until we yeah. light up Mendocino County. <laughs> real quick, I want to point out, let's hold on real quick, I want to point out there's a big difference in the battery world now that's changed a lot in the last two years is that we have large format cells and we have small format cells. And so small format cells are the same size cells that you would throw in a, in a flashlight that's built for lithium batteries that has thousands of these things. And large format cells, which are much more economical to test and verify that they did not get contaminated because this is contamination or very simple manufacturing faults in the cell that is uncontrollable is the primary difference between what we're buying today for the most part compared to what the entire industry has been built on for over 10 years since Sony built them in 1991. So we're moving toward the large format cells? Almost all of the manufacturers are moving towards large format cells. So Yay. you can get 20 kilowatt hours with eight cells in it, 
rather than a you know maybe couple thousand. Yeah. You know, and so think about how hard it is to test a million cells versus testing twenty thousand. Hey, to really test them well. We we got to call it quits. We're coming up to the top of the hour. Thanks for the call, caller. Hey, hey thanks, gentlemen. You guys have a good night. Good night. You. And Chris, uh, I should say good night to you. Hopefully, I'll have you back again in two weeks. Yeah, that's, we'll that's, talk. That's Y'all have a great night. All right. Good night, everybody. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.